Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book. The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below. Mr. Storer, Mr. McWilliams, other distinguished platform guests, ladies and gentlemen. I need not pause to say how very delighted I am to be here this afternoon and to have the privilege of being a part of this very significant conference. And in the very beginning, I want to express my deep personal appreciation uh, to my friend Robert Vaughn for these very kind and gracious words of introduction. It's always good to be in California and to renew old friendships and fellowships, and I'm happy to share the platform with uh, friends that I've known all along. I see Jack Tenner is here with us today, and he's been a great supporter of our work in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. You know, he's a great fundraiser, and one day we were having, or one evening rather, we were having a fundraising meeting at the home of Bert Lancaster, and when he got to making the appeal, my associate Ralph Abernathy said, you sound like a good Baptist preacher. <laughs> So whenever he talks to you about money, you better hold your pocketbook very closely. <laughs> but we're happy to be here with all of these friends. And of course, whenever I come to California, particularly when I take the flight out of New York or Chicago, I'm always happy to get on the ground because the flight over the Rockies, you know, is usually very turbulent. And after a turbulent flight, I... I'm always happy to land. I don't want to give anybody here the impression that I don't have faith in God in the air. It's simply that I've had more experience with him on the ground. <laughs> Let me say briefly how happy I am to be here under the auspices of Nation magazine, uh, through its journalistic integrity and its genuine liberalism, uh, certainly this magazine has carved for itself an imperishable niche in the annals of uh, journalistic history in our nation. And I know those of us who are readers and subscribers of Nation magazine are deeply indebted to it 
for all that it has done to make the discussion of the vital issues of our day and our age a reality. I think we can all say, I'm sure nation would appreciate that applause you're about to give. <laughs> and certainly in these days of emotional tension, when the problems of the world are gigantic in extent and chaotic in detail, that is no greater need than for sober thinking, healthy debate, creative dissent, and enlightened discussion. And I think this is why this particular symposium is so important. And so this afternoon I would like to speak to you candidly and I hope forthrightly about our present involvement in Vietnam. And I have chosen as a subject from which to speak the casualties of the war in Vietnam. We are certainly all aware of the nightmarish physical casualties of this war. We see them in our living rooms and all of their tragic dimensions on television screens and we read about them on our subway and bus rides in daily newspaper accounts. We see the rice fields of a small Asian country uh, being trampled at will and burned at whim. We see grief-stricken mothers with crying babies clutched tightly in their arms as they watched their little huts burst forth into flames. We see the fields and valleys of battle being painted with humankind's blood. We see the broken bodies left prostrate in countless fields. Most tragic of all is the casualty list among children. It is estimated that some one million Vietnamese children have been casualties of this brutal war, a war in which children are incinerated by napalm, in which Amer American soldiers die in mounting numbers, while other American soldiers, according to press accounts, an unrestrained hatred shoot the wounded enemy as they lie on the ground it is a war that mutilates the conscience. These casualties are enough to cause all men to rise up with righteous indignation and oppose the very nature of this evil war. But the physical casualties of the war in Vietnam are not alone the catastrophes the casualties of principles and values are equally disastrous and injurious. If the casualties of principle are not healed, the phys physical casualties will continue to mount. One of the first casualties of the war in Vietnam was the charter of the United Nations in taking armed action against the, Vietnam, uh, the Viet Cong and North Vietnam, the United States clearly violated 
the UN Charter, which provides in Chapter 1, Article 2, that all members shall refrain in their international relations from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state or in any other manner inconsistent with the purposes of the United Nations. And in Chapter 7, it states that the Security Council shall determine the existence of any threat to peace, breach of the peace, or act of aggression, and shall make recommendations or shall decide what measures shall be taken to maintain or restore international peace and security. It is very obvious that our government blatantly violated its obligation under the Charter of the UN to submit to the Security Council its charge of aggression against North Vietnam. Instead, we unilaterally launched an all-out war on Asian soil. In the process, we have undermined the purpose of the UN and caused its effectiveness at many points to atrophy. We have also placed our nation in the position of being morally and politically isolated. Even the long-standing allies of America have adamantly refused to join our government in this ugly war. As Americans and lovers of democracy, we should carefully ponder the consequence of our nation's declining moral status in the world. The second casualty of the war in Vietnam is the principle of self-determination. By entering a war that is little more than a domestic civil war, America has ended up supporting a new form of colonialism covered up by certain niceties of complexity. Whether we realize it or not, our participation in the war in Vietnam is an om ominous expression of our lack of sympathy for the oppressed, our paranoid anti-communism, our failure to feel the ache and anguish of the have-nots. It reveals our willingness to continue participation in neo-colonialist adventures. A brief look at the background and history of this war reveals with brutal clarity the ugliness of our policy. The Vietnamese people proclaimed their own independence in 1945 after the combined French and Japanese occupation and before the Communist Revolution in China. They were led by the now well-known Ho Chi Minh. Even though they quoted the American Declaration of Independence in their own document of freedom, we refused to recognize them. Instead, we decided to support France in its reconquest of her former colony. President Truman felt th then that the Vietnamese people were not ready for independence. And we again fell victim to the deadly Western arrogance that has poisoned the international atmosphere for so long. With that tragic decision, we rejected a revolutionary government seeking self-determination and a government that had been established not by China, for whom the Vietnamese people have no great love, 
but by clearly indigenous forces that included some communists. For nine years following 1945, we denied the people of Vietnam the right of independence. For nine years, we vigorously supported the French in their abortive effort to recolonize Vietnam. Before the end of the war, we were meeting 80% of the French war costs. Even before the French were defeated at Dien Bien Phu, they began to despair of their reckless action. But we did not. We encouraged them with our huge financial and military supplies to continue the war even after they had lost the will. During this period, United States governmental officials began to brainwash the American public. John Foster Dulles assiduously sought to prove that Indochina was essential to our security against the Chinese communist peril. When a negotiated settlement of the war was reached in 1954 through the Geneva Accord, it was done against our will. After doing all that we could to sabotage the planning for the Geneva Accord, we finally refused to sign it. Soon after this, we helped install Premier Diem. We supported him in his betrayal of the Geneva Accord, Accord and his refusal to have the promised 1956 election. We watched with approval as he engaged in ruthless and bloody persecution of all opposition forces. When Diem's infamous actions finally led to the formation of the National Liberation Front, the American public was duped into believing that the civil rebellion was being waged by puppets from Hanoi. As Douglas Pike wrote, and hard Americans helplessly watched Diem tear apart the fabric of Vietnamese society more effectively than the communists had ever been able to do. It was the most efficient act of his entire career. Since Diem's death, we have actively supported another dozen military dictatorships, all in the name of fighting for freedom. When it became evident that these regimes could not defeat the Viet Cong, we began steadily to increase our forces, calling them military advisors rather than soldiers. Today we are fighting an all-out war, undeclared by Congress. We have well over 300,000 American servicemen fighting in that benighted and unhappy country. American planes are bombing the territory of another country, and we are committing atrocities equal to any perpetrated by the Viet Cong. This is the third largest war in American history. All of this reveals that we are in an untenable position, morally and politically. We are left standing before the world glutted by our own barbarity. We are engaged in a war that seeks to turn the clock of history back and perpetuate white colonialism. The greatest irony and tragedy of it all is that our nation, which initiated so much of the revolutionary spirit of the modern world, is now cast in the mold of being an arch anti-revolutionary. 
A third casualty of the war in Vietnam is the Great Society. This confused war has played havoc with our domestic destinies. Despite feeble protestations to the contrary, the promises of the Great Society have been shot down on the battlefields of Vietnam. The pursuit of this widened war has narrowed domestic welfare programs, making the poor white and Negro bear the heaviest burdens both at the front and at home. While the anti-poverty program is cautiously initiated, zealously supervised and evaluated for immediate results, billions are liberally expended for this ill-considered war. The recently revealed misestimate of the war budget amounts to $10 billion for a single year. This error alone is more than five times the amount committed to anti-poverty programs. The security we profess to seek in foreign adventures, we will lose in our decaying cities. The bombs in Vietnam explode at home. They destroy the hopes and possibilities for a decent America. If we reversed investments and gave the armed forces the anti-poverty budget, the generals could be forgiven if they walked off the battlefield in disgust. Poverty... (laughs) Poverty, urban problems, and social progress generally are ignored when the guns of war become a national obsession, when it is not our security that is at stake, but questionable and vague commitments to reactionary regimes. Values disintegrate into foolish and adolescent slogans. It is estimated that we spend $322,000 for each enemy we kill while we spend in the so-called war on poverty in America only about $53 for each person classified as poor. We have escalated the war in Vietnam and de-escalated the skirmish against poverty. It challenges the imagination to contemplate what lives we could transform if we were to cease killing. At this moment in history, It is irrefutable that our world prestige is pathetically frail. Our war policy excites pronounced contempt and aversion virtually everywhere, even when some national governments, for reasons of economic and diplomatic interest, do not condemn us. Their people, in surprising measure, have made clear they do not share the official policy. We are isolated in our false values in a world demanding social and economic justice. We must undergo a vigorous reordering of our national priorities. A fourth casualty of the war in Vietnam is the humility of our nation. Through rugged determination, scientific and technological progress and dazzling achievements, America has become the richest and most powerful nation in the world. We have built machines that think 
and instruments that peer into the unfathomable ranges of interstellar space. We have built gargantuan bridges to span the seas and gigantic buildings to kiss the skies. Through our airplanes and spaceships, we have dwarfed distance and placed time in chains. And through our submarines, we have penetrated oceanic depths. This year, our national gross product will reach the astounding figure of $780 billion. All of this is a staggering picture of our great power. But honesty impels me to admit that our power has often made us arrogant as a nation. We feel that our money can do anything. We arrogantly feel that we have everything to teach other nations and nothing to learn from them. We often arrogantly feel that we have some divine messianic mission to police the whole world. We are arrogant in not allowing young nations to go through the same growing pains, turbulence, and revolution that characterized our history. We are arrogant in our contention that we have some sacred mission to protect people from totalitarian rule while we make little use of our power to end the evils of South Africa and Rhodesia, and while we in fact support dictatorships with guns and money under the guise of fighting communism. We are arrogant in professing to be concerned about the freedom of foreign nations while not setting our own house in order. Many of our senators and congressmen vote joyously to appropriate billions of dollars for war in Vietnam. And these same senators and congressmen vote loudly against a fair housing bill to make it possible for a Negro veteran of Vietnam to purchase a decent home. We arm Negro soldiers to kill on foreign battlefields, but offer little protection for their relatives from beatings and killings in our own South. We are willing to make the Negro 100% of a citizen in warfare, but reduce him to 50% of a citizen on American soil. Of all the good things in life, the Negro has approximately one-half those of whites. Of the bad, he has twice that of whites. And thus, half of all Negroes live in substandard housing, and he has half the income of whites. When we turn to the negative experiences of life, the Negro has a double share. There are twice as many unemployed. The rate of infant mortality among Negroes is double that of whites. There were twice as many Negroes in combat in Vietnam at the beginning of 1967, and twice as many died in action in proportion to their numbers in the population as whites. All of this reveals that our nation has not yet used its vast resources of power to end the long night of poverty, racism, and man's inhumanity to man. Enlarged power means enlarged peril. If that is not concomitant growth of the soul, genuine power is the right use of strength. If our nation's strength is not used responsibly and with restraint, it will be following Lord Acton's dictum, power that tends to corrupt, and power that corrupts an absolute power that corrupts absolutely. 
Our arrogance can be our doom. It can bring the curtains down on our national drama. Ultimately, a great nation is a compassionate nation. We are challenged in these turbulent days to use our power to speed up the day when every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places plain. A fifth casualty of the war in Vietnam is the principle of dissent, an ugly, repressive sentiment to silence peace seekers depicts advocates of immediate negotiation under terms of the Geneva Agreement and persons who call for the cessation of bombings in the North as quasi-traitors, fools or venal enemies of our soldiers and institutions. Free speech and the privilege of dissent and discussion are rights being shot down by bombers in Vietnam. When those who stand for peace are so vilified, it is time to consider where we are going and whether free speech has not become one of the major casualties of the war. Curtailment of free speech is rationalized on grounds that a more compelling American tradition forbids criticism of the government when the nation is at war. More than a century ago, when we were in a declared state of war with Mexico, a first-term congressman by the name of Abraham Lincoln stood in the halls of Congress and fearlessly denounced that war. Congressman Abraham Lincoln of Illinois had not heard of this tradition. Uh, he was not inclined to respect it, nor had Thoreau and Emerson and many other philosophers who shaped our democratic principles. Nothing can be more destructive of our fundamental democratic traditions than the vicious effort to silence dissenters. A sixth casualty of the war in Vietnam is the prospects of mankind's survival. This war has created the climate for greater armament and further expansion of destructive nuclear power. One of the most persistent ambiguities that we face is that everybody talks about peace as a goal. However, it does not take sharpest-eyed sophistication to discern that while everybody talks about peace, peace has become practically nobody's business among the power wielders. Call the role of those who sing the glad tidings of peace, and one's ears will be surprised by the responding sounds. The heads of all of the nations issue clarion calls for peace, Yet these destiny determiners come accompanied by a band and a brigade of national choristers, each bearing unsheathed swords rather than olive branches. The stages of history are replete with the chants and choruses of the conquerors of old who came killing in pursuit of peace. Alexander Genghis Khan, Julius Caesar, Charlemagne, and Napoleon what a kin, a kin in their seeking a peaceful world, a world fashioned after their selfish conceptions of an ideal existence. Each sought a world at peace which would personify their egotistic dreams. Even within the lifespan of most of us, another megalomaniac strode across the stage of history. 
He sent his troops blazing across Europe, bringing havoc and holocaust in his wake. That is grave irony in the fact that Hitler could come forth following the nakedly aggressive expansionist theories he revealed in Mein Kampf and do it all in the name of peace. So when I see in this day the leaders of nations similarly talking peace while preparing for war, I take frightful pause. When I see our country today intervening in what is basically a civil war, destroying hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese children and adults with napalm, and sending home half-men mutilated mentally and physically. When I see the recalcitrant unwillingness of our government to create the atmosphere for a negotiated settlement of this awful conflict by halting bombings in the North and agreeing to talk with the Viet Cong, and all this in the name of pursuing the goal of peace, I tremble for our world. I do so not only from dire recall of the nightmares wreaked in the wars of yesterday, but also from dreadful realization of today's possible nuclear destructiveness and tomorrow's even more damnable prospects. The past is prophetic in that it asserts loudly that wars are poor chisels for carving out peaceful tomorrows. One day we must come to see that peace is not merely the distant goal that we seek, but a means by which we arrive at that goal. We must pursue peaceful ends through peaceful means. How much longer must we play? <laughs> How much longer must we play at deadly war games? before we heed the plaintive pleas of the unnumbered dead and maimed of past wars. Why can't we at long last grow up and take off our blindfolds, chart new courses, put our hands to the rudder and set sail for the distant destination, the port city of peace? President John F. Kennedy said on one occasion, mankind must put an end to war. A war will put an end to mankind. How true this is, wisdom born of experience should tell us that war is obsolete. There may have been a time when war served as a negative good by pre preventing the spread and growth of an evil force, but the destructive power of modern weapons eliminates even the possibility that war may serve as a negative good. If we assume that life is worth living, and that man has a right to survive, then we must find an alternative to war. In a day when vehicles hurtle throughout a space and guided ballistic missiles carve highways of death through the stratosphere, no nation can claim victory in war. A so-called limited war will leave little more than a calamitous legacy of human suffering, political turmoil, and spiritual disillusionment. A world war, God forbid, will leave only smoldering ashes as a mute testimony of a human race whose folly led inexorably to ultimate death. So if modern man continues to flirt unhesitatingly with war, he will transform his earthly habitat into an inferno such as even the mind of Dante 
could not imagine. I do not wish to minimize the complexity of the problems that need to be faced in achieving disarmament and peace, but I think it is a fact that we shall not have the will, the courage, and the insight to deal with such matters unless in this field we are prepared to undergo a spiritual and a mental reevaluation, a change of focus, which will enable us to see that the things which seem most real and powerful are indeed now unreal and have come under the sentence of death. We need to make a supreme effort to generate the readiness, indeed the eagerness, to enter into the new world which is now possible. We will not build a peaceful world by following a negative path. It is not enough to say we must not wage war. It is necessary to love peace and sacrifice for it. We must concentrate not merely on the negative expulsion of war, but on the positive affirmation of peace. That is a fascinating little story that is preserved for us in Greek literature about Ulysses and the sirens. The sirens had the ability to sing so sweetly that sailors could not resist steering toward their island. Many ships were lured upon the rocks, and men forgot home, duty, and honor as they flung themselves into the sea to be embraced by the arms that drew them down to death. Ulysses, determined not to be lured by the sirens, first decided to tie himself tightly to the mast of his boat, and his crew stuffed their ears with wax. But finally, he and his crew learned a better way to save themselves. They took on board the beautiful singer Orpheus, whose melodies were sweeter than the music of the sirens. When Orpheus sang, who bothered to listen to the sirens? So we must fix our vision not merely on the negative expulsion of war, but upon the positive affirmation of peace. We must see that peace represents a sweeter music, a cosmic melody that is far superior to the discords of war. Somehow we must transform the dynamics of the world power struggle from the negative nuclear arms race, which no one can win, to a positive contest to harness man's creative genius for the purpose of making peace and prosperity a reality for all of the nations of the world. In short, we must shift from the arms race into a peace race if we have the will and determination to mount such a peace offensive we will unlock hitherto tightly sealed doors of hope and bring new light into the dark chambers of pessimism let me say finally that i oppose the war in vietnam because i love america i speak out against it not in anger but with anxiety and sorrow in my heart and above all, with a passionate desire to see our beloved country stand as the moral example of the world. I speak out against this war because I am disappointed with America. There can be no great disappointment where there is not great love. I am disappointed with our failure to deal positively and forthrightly with the triple evils of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism, we are presently moving down a dead-end road 
that can lead to national disaster. Jesus once told a parable of a young man who left home and wandered into a far country when adventure after adventure and sensation after sensation he sought life, but he never found it. He found only frustration and bewilderment. The further he moved from his father's house, the closer he came to the house of despair. The more he did what he liked, the less he liked what he did. After the boy had wasted all the famine developed in the land, and he ended up seeking food in a pig's trough. But the story does not end there. It goes on to say that in this state of disillusionment, blinding frustration and homesickness, the boy came to himself and said, I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. The prodigal son was not himself when he left the father's house or when he dreamed that pleasure was the end of life. Only when he made up his mind to go home and be a son again did he really come to himself. The parable ends with the, the boy returning home to find the loving father waiting with outstretched arms and a heart filled with unutterable joy. This is an analogy of what America confronts today. Like all human analogies, it is imperfect, but it does suggest some parallels worth considering. America has strayed to the far country of racism and militarism. The home that all too many Americans left was solidly structured idealistically. Its pillars were soundly grounded in the insights of our Judeo-Christian heritage. All men are made in the image of God. All men are brothers. All men are created equal. Every man is an heir to a legacy of dignity and worth. Every man has rights that are neither conferred nor, nor derived from the state. They are God-given. Out of one blood, God made all men to dwell upon the face of the earth. What a marvelous foundation for any home. What a glorious and healthy place to inhabit. But America strayed away. And this unnatural excursion has brought only confusion and bewilderment. It has left hearts aching with guilt and minds distorted with irrationality. It has driven wisdom from her sacred throne. And this long and callous sojourn in the far country of racism and militarism has brought a moral and spiritual famine to the nation. It is time for all people of conscience to call upon America to return to her true home of brotherhood and peaceful pursuits. We cannot remain silent as our nation engages in one of history's most cruel and senseless wars. America must continue to have, during these days of human travail, a company of creative dissenters. We need them because the thunder of their fearless voices will be the only sound stronger than the blasts of bombs and the clamor of war hysteria. Those of us who love peace must organize effectively as the war hawks. As they spread the propaganda of war, we must spread the propaganda of peace. We must combine the fervor of the civil rights movement with the peace movement. We must demonstrate, teach, and preach 
Until the very foundations of our nation are shaken, we must work unceasingly to lift this nation that we love to a higher destiny, to a new plateau of compassion, to, more, no, to a more noble expression of humaneness. I have tried to be honest today. To be honest is to confront the truth. To be honest is to realize that the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of convenience and moments of comfort, but where he stands in moments of challenge and moments of controversy. However unpleasant and inconvenient the truth may be, I believe we must expose and face it if we are to achieve a better quality of American life. Just the other day, the distinguished American historian Henry Steele Cominger told the Senate committee, and I quote, Justice Holmes used to say that the first lesson a judge had to learn was that he was not God. We do tend, perhaps more than other nations, to transfer our wars into crusades. Our current involvement in Vietnam is cast increasingly into a moral mold it is my feeling that we do not have the resources, material, intellectual, or moral, to be at once an American power, a European power, and an Asian power. I agree with Mr. Cummins, and I would suggest that that is another kind of power that America can and should be. It is a moral power, a power harnessed to the service of peace and human beings, not in inhuman power and least against defenseless people. All of the world knows that America is a great military power. We need not be diligent in seeking to prove it. We must now show the world our moral power. That is an element of urgency in our redirecting American power. We are now faced with the fact that tomorrow is today. We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now in this unfolding conundrum of life and history. There's such a thing as being too late. Procrastination is still the thief of time. Life often leaves us standing bare, naked and dejected with a lost opportunity. The tide in the affairs of men does not remain at flood, it ebbs. We may cry out desperately for time to pause in her passage, but time is adamant in every plea. It rushes on over the bleached bones and cluttered, cluttered wreckage of numerous civilizations are written the pathetic words too late. There is an invisible book of life that faithfully records our vigilance or our neglect. The moving finger writes and having writ moves on. We still have a choice today, nonviolent coexistence, a violent co-annihilation. History will record the choice we make. It is still not too late to make the proper choice. If we to decide to become a moral power, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of this world into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. If we make the wise decision, we will be able to transform our pending national and cosmic elegy into a creative psalm of peace. This will be a glorious day. 
If we will only do it, we will speed up the day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, Easterners and Westerners will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book. The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below.